Good morning. My name is Pastor John, the associate pastor here at East Shore. I'm so glad you're worshiping with us. Well, I have a question for you before we begin. If you would think for a moment, and you don't have to say it out loud, but think to yourself, what bores you? What bores you? Maybe it's a teacher lecturing that puts you to sleep. Maybe watching a documentary bores you. I know there's some people they can't stand to watch sports. Maybe the news is what you find boring. Some people like public channels like C-SPAN, they find that fascinating, and some people can barely watch that for one minute. We could say the same thing about maybe a home shopping network or a home renovation show. Some people really like them, some people can't stand them. There's some people who really enjoy sitting and talking with friends or even just sitting and doing nothing for an afternoon, and I know there's others who have to be moving at all times or they feel like they'd be going crazy. I think we can all agree, though, that if someone gives us details about something that we don't care about, we find that to be boring. An in-depth list about something that has no relevance to us, well, that just seems pointless. Now, today, our passage in the book of Joshua, on the surface, kind of seems just like that, because the seven chapters that we're going to talk about today is, for the most part, a list of cities and towns in ancient Israel. We don't really know, even if those who study it a lot don't know where all of those places are. And so we can struggle to understand why is this important. But these details in God's Word have a purpose. And if we see that purpose, then they'll come alive for us in a whole new light. These detailed chapters are in God's Word to remind the Israelites of their faithful God and His faithful followers while at the same time they warn God's people about signs of trouble. So let's look at that faithful God as we examine our passage for today. So if you're not already there, if you'd please turn your Bibles to Joshua chapters 13 through 19. And if you're able, I'd ask you to please stand as we read our passage, Joshua chapters 13 through 19. I'm just kidding. We are not reading (laughs) Joshua 13 through 19. You can still stand to honor the reading of God's Word. But if you're there, try to find chapter 14 of Joshua. If you want to use that red Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, it's on page 124, Joshua chapter 14. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read 14 verses 6 through 15. We'll talk about 13 through 19, but we're not going to read all that right now. So I'm reading from the English Standard Version, Joshua 14, beginning in verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore to me on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and for your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. 
And now behold, I am this day 85 years old, and I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim, the giants, were there with great and fortified cities. And it may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba, or the city of Arba, and Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim and the giants. And the land had rest for more. Let's pray. Lord, truly great is thy faithfulness. Thank you, God, for being faithful to us and for being with us now as we look at your word. We want to see you in this scripture, God. Help us to not get bogged down in the details and names, but to see how these chapters reveal you and help us to see you clearly. To borrow words from John the Baptist, we want you to increase, God, and we want us and everyone else to decrease so we can see you clearly. Lord, lead us to grasp how you are faithful to your people. Inspire us with examples of your faithful followers. Help us to learn from signs of trouble that we should trust in you and in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's talk for a moment about where we are in Scripture. Once again, we're in the book of Joshua. This is the story about how God is giving his people the promised land. They had spent years in slavery in Egypt. Moses led them out of slavery, and now Joshua is with the people, leading them into the promised land. Last week, we read about the end of the war. They've conquered the land. Joshua and Israel defeated 31 kings. They now control the promised land, and the land had rest from war. But just because they've won the battles, that doesn't mean that their task is over. Yes, the major fighting has stopped, but now it's time for God's people to move forward and divide the land that God has given them. That allotment or division or distribution your translation may have, this dividing of the land is what chapters 13 through 19 are all about. So I'm going to begin this morning with kind of an overview of these seven chapters, and this bird's eye view is going to help us get a picture of our faithful God, our faithful God. Well, the major point of this passage and the major point of the book of Joshua is that God has been faithful in giving his people the land. Chapter 13 kind of presents us with the situation about what's happening here. It tells us that Joshua is old and he is advanced in years. He knows it, the Israelites know it, and even God says it in verse 1. God says to Joshua, you are old and advanced in years. That would be a humbling thing to hear from the Lord. (laughs) Joshua's defeated the armies of his enemies, but there's still much land that remains to be possessed that they actually need to take over and settle in. And so God tells Joshua that his task is to obey his command and divide this inheritance, this special 
possession of land among nine and a half tribes of the Israelites. The rest of chapter 13 reminds us that two and a half of the 12 tribes had already received their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River. So the rest of the passage is about the division of land for those other tribes. And so this section from chapter 14 through chapter 19, it begins and ends almost exactly the same. Both passages talk about Joshua, the high priest Eleazar, and the heads or leaders of each father or clan's house. 14 verse 1 says, These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people gave them, gave to the people, to inherit. So these men are the leaders who will divide this land. And this is actually a fulfillment of the Lord's words in Numbers 34, verses 16 through 18. We read that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land to you for an inheritance Eleazar the priest, and Joshua the son of Nun. And you shall also take one chief from every tribe to divide the land for inheritance. So that's incredible because before they even get to the promised land, the Lord knows who he wants to be in charge of dividing it. Now, if we read through those chapters and we looked at all the divisions of land, there's a little map here that shows you roughly where most people think their kind of borders were. But just because they were assigned this land, that doesn't necessarily mean that's where they actually lived. Because in some cases, a tribe was forced out of their land by Canaanites, or they could not drive the enemy out of that territory. And sometimes a tribe would live in a city that was not part of their official territory. But if we read through these chapters, chapters 14 and 15 tell us about the land that was given to the tribe of Judah down in the south. Chapters 16 and 17 are about the two tribes that come from Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, kind of in the middle of that picture there. Half of Manasseh's territory was on the east side of the Jordan River, half was on the west, and so by the end of chapter 17, there are seven tribes without assigned territory, and they gather together at Shiloh, and under the Lord's direction and leading, the rest of the land is divided. They do it by casting lots, kind of playing a little game of chance under God's direction to determine which tribe should receive which parcel of land. And so chapters 18 and 19 show us how the lands given to the tribes of Benjamin, Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and finally, the tribe of Dan. At the very end of chapter 19, it summarizes what has happened. These are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel, these are the inheritance that they distributed by lot at Shiloh, before the Lord, under his direction, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And so, they finally finished dividing the land. So in many ways, these chapters, which if we read through them, might seem boring to us, they're really the point of this whole book. Because the book of Joshua is about God giving his people the promised land. So these chapters are where it actually happens. These are the details about how those things came to be. And yes, details we don't understand can bore us, but details that we do grasp, oh, they can bring a story to life. 
So I'm going to tell you two stories, and you tell me which is a better story. Story one, my mom makes good food. Story two, my mom makes a delicious pineapple bread pudding that the fruit and the bread and the filling mixes together, and every time I eat it, I am longing for more. Now, I I imagine you'll agree that that second story is probably a more enjoyable one, but you noticed it was more details. I told you more about it there, but because you could relate to the details, you enjoyed that story more. So when we read through these chapters, we may gloss over all the details and city names here, but they were incredibly meaningful for the Israelites because to them, this was a real land for real people. We might not know every place listed in these chapters, but the first people who read this book, that they knew those places. They knew exactly where each city was. And so these words were an encouragement to them because every time they would read through these chapters or hear these verses read to them, they could think, hey, I know where those places are. Wow, God gave us all that? Wow, he really is faithful to us. The next time we're in Joshua, we're going to talk about kind of a verse at the end of this section. It's the verse that summarizes the entire book. Joshua 21, 45 says, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. The most important point that we should leave with today is that God is faithful he fulfills his promises. He was faithful to Israel, and he will be faithful to you too. All you need to do is to call out to him. Well, now that we've seen a big picture of God's faithfulness, I like to kind of look at these chapters again, but zoom in to focus on a few snapshots of God's faithful followers, his faithful followers. Because scattered throughout these seven chapters are little scenes, little stories about Israelites who were faithful to the Lord, who was faithful to them. These snapshots were to remind the Israelites that it was faithful followers of God who would possess the promised land. And if you look on your handout, if you have it, you'll see there's four I'd like to look at. So the first and most prominent of these snapshots that we see is Caleb. Caleb. And we read about him in chapter 14, verses 6 through 15. Now, Caleb was one of the 12 spies that the Israelites had sent into the promised land. Ten of the spies, when they came back, convinced the people to abandon God's mission. But two of them, Joshua and Caleb, remained faithful. And as a result, they were the only two people to survive Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. We're told in our passage that Caleb's father was a Kenizzite, which means that he probably married into the tribe of Judah. And that's really interesting because it means that this faithful man and his family, who are now leaders in the tribe, they've only recently been connected to God's people within a generation. So you don't need a large family history to be faithful to God. In our text, Caleb comes before Joshua. He's there to remind him of what happened 45 years ago. He had been sent as a spy when he was 40 years old, and he brought back a good and an honest report of what was in his heart. And according to his convictions, he believed that God wanted the Israelites to go in and to take the promised land. Numbers 13.30 tells us that Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, let us go up at once and occupy it, 
for we are well able to overcome it. We can do it. We can take the promised land. Unfortunately, his fellow Israelite spies had frightened the people and made their hearts melt with fear. Caleb, though, wholly followed the Lord. Verse 8 from our passage, Joshua 14, 8, says, My brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. He was wholehearted in his commitment to his God. And therefore Moses passed on God's promise to him that he would one day possess the land that he had spied out. God himself actually made that promise to him in the book of Numbers in chapter 14. God says, my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Now, what Caleb says next in our passage is truly amazing. So this is kind of the end of of verse 10 uh, through verse 12. I'm going to paraphrase what he's saying. He says, I am 85 years old. It's been 45 years since then, and you know what? I feel great. I have all the strength and vigor that I had. I'm ready to receive what God had promised me. So Joshua, give me that hill country. Yes, the one with the Anakim, the giants, the tall people in their fortified cities. That's the land that I want. Wow, that, that, that's incredible. Because I don't know about you, but I don't know a lot of 85-year-olds rushing out to go fight giants today. But Caleb, Caleb knows that this is the land that the Lord has promised him. And he believes that God is faithful. As he says in the verse 12, it may be that the Lord will be with me. He's kind of saying, as long as the Lord is with me, I will drive them out and I will claim my promised land. Caleb knew what God had promised, and he trusted the Lord, even though there were obstacles in the way. His actions here are saying, yes, I know there are giants in that land, but I am going to trust God because he promised me that land, and I am going to to move forward. He has an extremely positive response to the word of God. He believed God's promises. He took God at his word. He trusted that the Lord was telling the truth. Now, his faith in God was often lonely, but he carried it with him his entire life. Back in the book of Numbers, Caleb and Joshua stood alone before the people of Israel. We read about this here, 14, 6 through 9, Joshua the son of Nun, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, they were among those who had spied out the land. They tore their clothes. They said to the congregation of the people of Israel, this land which we pass through to spy it out, it is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land. He will give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Then he adds only, do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Here we see Joshua and Caleb boldly declared what they thought was right. But at the same time, they remained committed to God and committed to his people. They knew the people were making the wrong choice, but they loved their disobedient brothers and sisters. And by sticking with them, declaring the truth, but staying with them, they earned the privilege of later leading them to victory. They trust 
They trusted that God was with them. And our text today is Caleb's faith being rewarded. Verses 13 through 15, Joshua blesses Caleb. He gives him the land that he asked for. And then, surprise, surprise, or not really, Caleb takes that land. You can read about that, chapter 15. It's just two verses, 13 and 14. Say, he drove out from there the three sons from Anak, the descendants of Anak. He defeated these giants. Now, in chapter 11, Joshua was getting credit for beating the giants, the Anakim, but here we see Joshua is really the commander-in-chief, and Caleb is the one who's actually doing the fighting. We talked last week that the Israelites were afraid of these giants, but Joshua and Caleb were not. In fact, the very last verse of chapter 14 shows us how as a reward for his faith, Caleb receives the city of the greatest giant. The city he got, Hebron, used to be called the city of Arba, who was the greatest man among those giants. Caleb showed true faithfulness to God. And true faith is an abiding loyalty. It's a commitment of our entire soul. True faith is what wholly committed Christians have. They remain committed to God throughout their lives. Now, that doesn't mean there's never a moment of doubt, but it does mean that we continue to cling to faith in God and we do not turn away from it. One author, Rhett Dotson, he puts it this way, true faith perseveres. It does not give up at the first bump in the road, but rather clings to God who made the road and trusts that even the bumps are a part of his plan. So friends, you can know that you know Jesus if you are trusting him now, if you are clinging to him no matter what trials come. What I'm saying is that saving faith is not simply a one-time decision. It's not just something you do once and then you move on with your life. True saving faith is a decision that impacts every day of your life. So let me warn you, if you claim to have made a decision for Christ, but it's not changing your life, then you need to ask yourself some serious questions. Because a true believer's faith should look like Caleb's wholehearted devotion to the Lord. And if it doesn't, it's incredibly important that you figure out why. A true relationship with God impacts and shapes every aspect of a believer's life. Now, there are other snapshots of faithful followers in our passage. We won't spend as much time with these, but still like to highlight them. The second snapshot, we have Caleb's son-in-law, Othniel, and his daughter, Aksa. We can read about them in chapter 15, verses 13 through 19, especially verses 15 through 19. So Caleb goes, he's beginning to conquer the cities that he's inherited. He's defeating the descendants of the giants that live there. And when he gets to one town named Debir or Kiriath Sefer, he issues a challenge in verse 16. Whoever strikes, whoever attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, to him I will give Aksa my daughter as a wife. And there's a man named Othniel who rises to the challenge. He conquers the city and marries Aksa. This man would go on to be the first deliverer of God's people we read about in the book of Judges. Now, on the surface, I know that that seems kind of old-fashioned. Someone goes, attacks a city, and gets to marry the girl. But it's, the text doesn't say this, but we read about that Othniel and Aksa were related. So they probably knew each other. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch of the imagination to believe that since Othniel probably knew Aksa, he probably cared for her. 
He probably knew that she was a woman worth fighting for. Because as we're about to discover, she's an impressive woman in her own right. And Othniel probably knew this was a strong and godly woman, and he would do whatever it takes to have her in his life. And so that's what he did, and he took that city. But there's a problem with this city. This town is in the Negev, or the dry desert. It's not near a water source of its own. Her, Othniel's new wife, Axa, she realizes this, and she urges, she persuades her new husband to let her go and ask her father for another blessing. Well, he agrees, and she boldly goes to her father and asks for access to water. She says in verse 19, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me land of the Negev in the desert, give me also springs of water. And Caleb's moved by her faith and her obedience and her confidence. So he gives her more than what she asked for. Text tells us that he gives her the upper springs and the lower springs. And that's all we have about these two. And I know it's a very short snippet, but I kind of love what it says about Othniel and Axa. Because as I read it, they seem to me like a 1400-ish BC power couple. They were both brave. They were courageous in seeking what God had promised them. Neither were afraid to fight for what they believed God said he would give them. This faithful couple and their courageous faith, it should inspire all married couples to seek the Lord together. They should inspire to love one another and challenge one another to chase after God and to do his will. But not just married people, anyone, any relationship we have with another Christian should involve encouraging one another to greater and greater faith in the Lord. The third faithful followers that we meet as we go through these chapters are the daughters of Zelophehad, the daughters of Zelophehad. We read about them in 17, 3 through 6. If you're using the handout, you should thank me because I wanted to make Zelophehad the underline, and instead I thought, you know what, I'll make it daughters instead. In these verses, there are five women who come before Joshua. They ask him to give them an inheritance with the men of their tribe. They are reminding Joshua of something that occurred back in the book of Numbers, chapter 27. In that event, these five sisters, the same women, came before Moses and asked if they could inherit a portion of the land along with their uncles. The problem was their father had died, and he had not had a son, so there were no male heirs to his land. Their inheritance would be lost if they did not fight for it. In their words, they say this, Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? So give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Now think about this. This is the ancient world. This is a courageous action by these women. This is not the 21st century. Women did not have as many rights and freedoms as they have today. They were more often viewed as property rather than as deserving to inherit property themselves. But these women, they knew what was right. They were willing to trust God, to take a risk and receive God's blessing. The next three verses of Numbers 27 tell us what happened. We read that Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them a possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers. You shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. 
Our God is a God of justice, and it would not be right for a family of his people to lose their inheritance. He defends the weak and oppressed, the orphan and the widow. These brave women trusted God to be faithful to his character, to be faithful to his promise. They clung with wholehearted faith to the one true God. And now, back in Joshua, God's words to them in the wilderness are fulfilled in our text. Joshua 17, verse 4, the end of it says, So according to the mouth of the Lord, Joshua gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah inherit their father's land. Friends, gender is no barrier to being a faithful follower of the Lord. All of God's people receive his blessings. Even if you're in a situation you feel belittled, disrespected, or unimportant, God can still use you. You can still be a faithful follower of him. He will always take care of you. Well, finally, our passage ends with another snapshot of the faithful follower that this whole book is about. That's right, there's a little thing said about Joshua. At the very end of chapter 19, verses 49 and 50, Joshua receives his inheritance. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath-Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim, and he rebuilt the city and settled in it. Like a good leader, Joshua waits until everyone under his command has been taken care of before he takes care of himself. And he claims a small, out-of-the-way city that he rebuilds and settles into for his twilight years. The land had been conquered. It had been divided. Joshua's task was finished and his leadership was drawing to a close. These verses would be a reminder to the Israelites of what happens with a lifetime of faithfulness. A lifetime of faithfulness, a lifetime of wholehearted devotion to the Lord would give them rest, would let them keep their inheritance. Friends, we could all learn from these four snapshots of faithful followers. Caleb teaches us to be committed to God with our whole hearts, to believe in Him no matter what others say, and to trust in His promises and His presence. Othniel and Axa remind us that we should encourage one another to be courageous and faithful followers of our Lord. The daughters of Zelophehad show us that the faithful God will always be faithful to us, even when we feel insignificant. And in this last part of the text, Joshua's inheritance is a challenge to continue in wholehearted devotion for all of our lives. We are here for a purpose— to bring glory and praise to the Lord. It will be hard to live for Him, but it will be more than worth it to pursue Him every day for the rest of our lives. Those snapshots of those faithful followers are important because as we also read through these chapters, we discover that not all is right among the Israelites. Even in the light of a faithful God and these examples of faithful followers, there are still signs of trouble signs of trouble. There are hints of troubles to come, and there's two little troubling stories in this passage. These hints show up in verses that are scattered throughout, 
uh, these chapters. You'll notice I'll leave this map up because it kind of shows some of the places that are talked about. On the east side of the Jordan River, we learn in Joshua 13, 13, that the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Macathites, but Gesher and Macath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Those kind of up in the top right. If we go a little bit later in chapter 15, verse 63, we read that the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. They're kind of in the middle. The white cuts in a little bit to Israel's territory. And they wouldn't take Jerusalem until King David did that hundreds of years later. If we move on a little bit, I believe it's in chapter 16, verse 10, tells us about the tribe of Ephraim. They did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day. But they have been made to do forced labor. We see that kind of around where it says hill country of Ephraim. And then the tribe of Manasseh has some trouble with some cities that they're trying to take in chapter 17. The people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities. If you see in the top, it kind of cuts in a little bit all the way to the Jordan River. They could not take possession of them. The Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now, when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not utterly drive them out. I don't have this verse up here, but we can also read in chapter 19, verse 47, that one whole tribe, the tribe of Dan, lost their entire territory, and they had to move somewhere else. They had to take a city in the far north. Now, if you have a long memory, you might remember I actually preached about that story a few years ago, so you can read about it in the book of Judges, chapter 17 and 18. But what's happening here? Why are there all these hints of trouble? The Israelites are growing stronger. But instead of driving the Canaanites out like God told them to, they're living with them. And you know what? They probably thought that's a lot of work to push people out of all these cities. And so a little Canaanite city here or there, that's not really hurting anyone. However, the survival of these Canaanites would lead the Israelites to turn away from God. They started worshiping the Canaanite gods, and they would experience the judgment, the sin, the suffering and the death that we read all about in the books of Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And eventually, all this compromise would lead them to lose the promised land that the Lord had given them. If we tolerate, if we excuse sin in our lives, it will always lead to defeat. Sin has to be dealt with harshly and dealt with immediately. It needs to be removed from our lives as soon as possible. Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, according to your desires, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, you kill the deeds of the body, you kill sin within you, then you will live. And this is a lesson the Israelites would have to learn the hard way. Now those little hints are fleshed out in two kind of troubling accounts in the last few chapters of our passage. And I want to go over them briefly. That first troubling story is the attitude of the people of Joseph in chapter 17, verses 14 through 18. I'm not going to read it, but I'll describe it to you. The descendants of Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, they are not content with the land that had been given to them. They come to Joshua. They complain about their land. They say, our land is not big enough. But we soon discover they actually had another reason for their complaint. 
Joshua addresses them head on. He says, well, if you don't have enough land, you should go. You should clear out the forest space for you to live. But then they shoot back in verse 16 that the Canaanites, the hill country is not enough for us. The Canaanites who dwell in the plain, they have chariots of iron. Ah, at last we have the truth. It's not that they don't have enough land. The problem is they're afraid of the Canaanites' iron chariots. Now, if you remember last week, you might think, well, Pastor John, didn't the Israelites beat an army of chariots? Well, yes, but these are iron chariots. They're heavier. They're more destructive. And and so they had somewhat of a reason to be concerned, but that still doesn't excuse their response. God had just helped them defeat a huge army full of chariots. And even though iron chariots are scarier, they should have trusted that God would help them again. They should have believed Moses' words, though we looked at this last week, Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. When you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you. He is the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So here Joshua calms them down and he reminds them how numerous they are and he encourages them that God can use them to drive out the Canaanites, iron chariots at all. The end of chapter 17, verse 18 says, you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. His words helped replace their fear with faith. Nevertheless, though, this short episode, it's kind of troubling because it shows us that some of the Israelites, even in these large and powerful tribes, they're starting to doubt God's promises. And the second troubling story comes immediately after that. Chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, tell us the land is subdued before the people of Israel, but there are seven tribes who have not received their inheritance. And in chapter 18, verse 3, Joshua challenges them, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land? which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. How long will they wait to settle into their new homes? How long will they neglect this task that God has called them to? So these seven tribes, they were either too scared or too lazy to finish the conquest. And Joshua has to force them. He's like, give me some men. I'll send them out as scouts for you so we can divide this land. Now, they obey Joshua, they give them men, they scout the land, they divide the land, but their lack of initiative, it seems to, again, show a lack of trust in God's promises. These tribes do not appear to be as wholehearted in their devotion as the people of Judah, like Caleb, Othniel, and Aksa, or the people of Joseph, like the daughters of Zelophehad and Joshua. Now, why are we ending this message on really such a downer note? This passage is supposed to be a celebration. It's a rejoicing at God's faithfulness to his people and how his faithful followers respond to him. But the truth is it's not a perfect story. Mistakes were made. The truth is that nothing can be perfect on this side of eternity. Our sin, our rebellion against God always rears its ugly head. And as wonderful as this moment was for the Israelites, it was not the perfect ending and the perfect rest that they longed for. And that's because the land of Canaan was not the final destination for God's people. Settling in the promised land was not God's ultimate goal for his people. He wanted to live with his children. He wanted to have a restored relationship with the people he chose to love. 
This land was a place for them to worship God, but their sin kept getting in the way. And the same thing happens to us. As much as we try to seek God in our own power, we always fall short. Our sin keeps us from being the faithful followers we want to be. Unfortunately, we can't do it on our own, and we need help. But that's where I have good news, because God provided that help through the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. He was fully God and fully man, and He was able to live that perfect life that neither Caleb, nor Othniel, nor Aksa, nor the daughters of Zelophehad, nor even Joshua could live. And then He died to pay the penalty for our sin, and He rose to life in victory over death. So now, our relationship with God can be restored. Now, there is a way for us to receive our inheritance. If you do not know God through Jesus Christ, then you need to turn from your sin. You need to believe, trust in Christ. You can talk to me about that. Please make the time to do so or talk to someone about how you can have a relationship with Jesus. You cannot be faithful to God on your own. You need Him. Now, for those of us who do know Jesus, we are not home yet. We are in this world to live for God and to tell others about Him. We still daily battle our sinful flesh, but we battle it with the faith that someday that fight will be over. We will be in the presence of the Lord. In the meantime, to use the words from Titus 2, 13 and 14, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us, to purchase us, to save us from all lawlessness and sin, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, his own inheritance, who are zealous and passionate for good works. When he returns, we will truly receive our inheritance. There will be no more signs of trouble. We will be purified from our lawlessness and from our sin. We will be God's possession and inheritance, and he will be ours. Because of Christ alone, we will be perfectly faithful followers of our faithful God. So let's encourage one another by praising him because he alone is worthy.